Become spellweavers, reavers, rogues, and men-at-arms, and answer the call of adventure. Pick up your sword, your axe, your spellbook, your bow, your rulebook, and your dice, and join the forces of good in their eternal fight against vile monsters, conspiring min-maxers, horny bards, and blood-soaked murder hobos. Discover the treasure trove of role-playing games here on Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome back to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your RPG treasure trove, where we are making old school young again. I'm your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard. I'm put the R in OSR, and joining us once again this evening is someone who, uh, if you've seen the show in any of its various formats for any length of time, you've seen this guy, you've heard this guy, you should be listening to his podcast, the Knights and Nerds podcast. Uh, he is a great dungeon master and a great friend. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to Rolling Bones, Tim Mathias. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me again, Ryan. Absolutely. It's always great to have you on the show. I feel like I feel undeserving of such a, such an introduction. <laughs> you absolutely deserve it. Absolutely. All right. We'll see if you feel the same come the end of the episode. <laughs> Cool. So uh, as the title of the stream suggests, we are going to be talking all about uh, villains tonight, how to create villains, how to introduce villains, how to run villains. And I figured this would be a good topic to bring Tim on because uh, you have done a show in the past uh, slash are still, I guess, doing a show all about creating villains. Uh, you, you've gone through the fifth edition player's handbook and made villains based on the class archetypes presented there um and you've made some great villains for the campaigns that you've run on knights and nerds so uh you know i figured this would be a topic that you uh would be well equipped to discuss with us tonight i hope so we'll see absolutely and hello to grognard nightmares and uh dueling dragon adventures in chat glad you guys could join us this evening and hello to everyone who is just now joining us. Uh, so to, to begin at the beginning here of the, the conversation, I'm actually going to back up several steps. And uh, let's talk a little bit about writing in general, because in addition to being a great dungeon master, you are also a writer. I and did so write I wanna... a trilogy of, uh, of fantasy novels, yeah. And... Uh, and... Sometimes I forget. <laughs> uh, occasionally I'll get like a couple bucks from Amazon. I'll be like, oh yeah, I kind of did that thing. Um, yeah, I wrote I wrote a trilogy and like the podcast was originally started because I was like, I want to drive more people to the, to the books, <laughs> which I <laughs> hardly ever mention anymore, which is funny. But I... I, I want to pose this question to you because this is something mm -hmm. that's been kind of, you know, bouncing around in my head as I've been thinking about this. When it comes to 
narratives, specifically when it comes to the identity of the villain, the uh, ultimate showdown with the villain, and kind of the uh, the resolution to the overall conflict. Do you think it's important that any of those events remain a secret to the reader or in the context of uh, role-playing games to the players up until the point where they actually find themselves confronted by the villain or in the final showdown with him or, you know, resolving kind of the ultimate story that they're experiencing? Do you think any of that has to be completely 100% shrouded in mystery? Um, I think it's good to have some, like, mystique around your your villain um i think it also depends uh on on the context like your game specific if it's a mystery um then yeah having having the unknowns be something that the characters have to work through up until the point where they solve it uh is going to be really important but um i think i think for them to know certain things beforehand um is is totally okay um if if it's a if you're running i guess like a a real sort of typical adventure you know a lot of people like to introduce their their villains or some of their villains up front um and and that way the players can really stew on you know what they're up against which i think is is just as effective as as the mystery part is like knowing what you're going up against and, uh, and wondering all the time, are you equipped for it? Hmm. The, the reason I ask this question is something that I have kind of, I, I don't know it's hard to almost put into words. I've found as I've kind of gotten older and experienced more stories there's this tendency in modern storytelling to want every like to want a shocking reveal or a surprise twist uh usually more than one and i feel like this need to have a shocking twist has hamstrung a lot of otherwise perfectly fine stories and i i almost want to discourage anyone who is trying to come up with a villain for their RPG campaign from trying to replicate a twist style story or villain, because all you're going to do is just continually doubt yourself out of any good ideas you may have had. Yeah. Getting a twist right is, is tough. And um, I don't know if it's a trope, I mean, I I did it in in my first campaign. I had a well, I don't know if I had a plot twist rather than a secret that eventually got revealed. Um, I think there was at least one twist in there. Um, but uh, yeah, if 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 it becomes too tropish, then you know, is it a twist not not to have a twist? I, I think that that's something that somebody's probably asked before but uh um yeah i i don't think i don't think a huge reveal is um is really necessary and i think in 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 my current campaign that i'm running i think i shied away from that a little bit 
I think there was a reveal, but at the point, I think the players had already figured stuff out. So it wasn't a huge gasp moment. Um, it was more like an affirmation of what they had already suspected. Mm -hmm. And I think what, what you did in the first campaign, um, with, with Elden and the mind flayers, uh, spoilers for Tim's first campaign. I should have said that beforehand. Uh, but you guys should have all listened to it already. Uh, you you did something there that I feel like a lot of people forget to do, which is you laid groundwork and presented evidence to the players, to the listeners. In theory, someone could have put the pieces together, and I think maybe even a couple audience members, and maybe even, uh, I think Tom, at a certain point, actually started putting pieces together and was like, there's mind flayers here. Yeah. But... <laughs> I feel like it's important to have a mystery that your players or your audience can solve even before you're kind of ready to reveal to them the ultimate secret. And I feel like that distinguishes itself from just the out-of-nowhere twist that no one could have ever guessed, and it's that way because you don't want anyone to guess it. When you're trying to outsmart your audience or your players... I feel like that's where you run into uh, dangerous territory where you're actually just, you know, doing yourself more harm than good. Yeah. Um, I, I, I listened to a, uh, a podcast called, um, I think it was called the GM's guide. It was, it was um, by a guy named Dan Felder. And this was years ago. Um, like a probably a couple years before I started recording campaign one and he had said he was a game designer i think for uh was it bioware at the time anyways so he um it may have been ea anyways he, so he had said in his podcast which uh which i would recommend anybody to go listen to um if it's still up uh that a good twist has to be post-dictable so once the twist gets revealed, you have to be able to go back to the various um, uh, beats that have come before mm -hmm. and say, oh, that's what that was. That makes sense. So the audience has to, the players have to feel, um, uh, you know, like, they, like it wasn't just a surprise that they couldn't have anticipated. Um, and it's an extra challenge for a game um, as opposed to like writing a story because you know, a story you have absolute control over. But a game, you know, you you as the dungeon master, you you want things to unfold in a certain way, but the players are gonna figure things out in their own on their own time. Yeah. Uh, which may be ahead of your schedule. <laughs> and it usually is. <clears throat> yeah, and Grognard Night Nightmare makes a uh a point here in chat that the world needs mystery. There has to be mysteries for your players to uncover, but the villain maybe doesn't necessarily require, uh, you know, a complete mystery. It, it's okay if your players know who they're up against early on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I read a lot of uh, posts in, in, you know, Dungeon Master Advice uh forums and uh and certainly i think introducing a villain who is you know 
way higher tier than the characters are near the start of the campaign is is totally acceptable nothing at all wrong with that it it telegraphs to them like this is the power level of this villain they could witness this villain taking out a powerful npc or maybe this villain just is so powerful that it ignores the party altogether um knowing who you're up against is nothing nothing at all wrong with that you don't need to bake in mystery um something that you could easily do to you know incorporate some elements of the unknown is like what exactly is this villain capable of um and you can sort of you know draw back the curtain slowly throughout the game as the as the players uh rise in level as they as they proceed to meet this challenge mm -hmm. yep yeah i'm gonna dust off an uh, an old example here from uh, one of our previous conversations on your show, I am going to bring out of Mothballs our old friend, uh, Lord Sarkon the One-Eyed. And he will be... <laughs> he will be my example villain uh, kind of for the, the conversations moving forward. And so I'm, I'm bringing him up, uh, one, to transition us specifically more into the, the villain conversation, Uh but to talk a little bit more about mystery around a villain, it's perfectly reasonable for players to know who Sarkhan the One-Eyed is and see him. You know, they see his armies marching through the streets. Uh, you know, they see him giving a speech from, uh, you know, the, the parapets of his castle, uh, telling all the people that, you know, they will, you know, bend the knee in submission to him or they will face the consequence and the... Uh, the sharp end of his blade, but at the same time, I feel like an essential part of any campaign is, even though you know who Sarkhan the One-Eyed is, you have to find out who Sarkhan the One-Eyed is. In that you need to find out what makes this man work. How, how does he conduct his business? What you know, what's going on in that twisted mind of his? What are his strengths? What are his weaknesses? I feel like that is essential to ultimately kind of undoing the uh, the evil deeds of any villain that you encounter in an RPG. And so that's a place where I think mystery ends up being essential. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you're... When you're preparing Sarkhan the one-eyed to to be introduced into your story i mean you have to you have to figure out you know what does he what does he want every character wants something and and certainly um any villain that can be overcome by sheer brute force is going to be maybe a little bit forgettable um and if you want this campaign it, even if it's not like the main villain like at the end of the campaign but maybe like at the end of a certain act or at the end of a certain chapter like you want you want your your characters your bad guy characters to be memorable and so having them fleshed out with their wants with their weaknesses um it's it's not only integral and good 
character building, but it's really an opportunity for the players to interact with that world. It creates, you know, really um, strong sense of 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 reality, verisimilitude. Um, I think is an important word that gets um, uh, that we can use um, to just to make sure that this character isn't just totally one dimensional and uh, certainly rewarding for your players, for them to um, gain something valuable. uh, That's not like a magic item or, um, or, or a bonus to their die rolls. Uh, For example, it's, it's something valuable um, narratively that also can translate into, you know, how they eventually win. Hmm. Oh, it looks like Victor Gorchev has joined us. Hey, Vic. Welcome. Welcome. But yeah, uh, going off of what you said there about introducing narrative concepts rather than like straight up just, you know, here's the sword that you have to stab him with. Here's your, uh, uh, what is it, the the silver arrow that kills uh, Ganon in the original Legend of Zelda. Instead of presenting your players with that, having it be a piece of lore or a piece of information, I think that's something that's overlooked a lot of times because so often I feel like GMs will default to this villain is a physical threat to the party in that if you guys roll initiative right now, uh, he's going to do some serious damage to you and most of you are probably going to die, if not all of you. But I think... A lot of times you can get more mileage out of a villain that's kind of a uh, a moral or intellectual threat to the players. A villain who, you know, maybe they could muster their forces, kick down the door, and ultimately take him down, uh, you know, four or five or six to one. But there is something preventing them from doing that. Usually a hostage or some kind of machination that, uh, you know, the villain has in place. And so I I think in those cases, it's better to have a, uh, you know, a a piece of lore, a piece of information, a closely guarded secret uh, that the players have to seek out and, and maybe even have to seek out the fact that there is something out there for them to learn to overcome this threat. Yeah, you know, I just I just realized that I make um, I make my players fill out like a character questionnaire mm-hmm. um, to help them sort of better understand their characters uh, and and their place in the world. Uh, and I I realized that you know what it'd be really good for dungeon masters or game masters to do the same thing with with your antagonists. Uh, you know, have a list of questions that. You know, if you are asking your player characters like, you know, what's your most valued possession? What's a secret you don't want anybody to know? What's a rumor about you? Um, it would be super helpful if you did that for your own um, villains and antagonists. Um, and I, I totally agree with what you said about uh, having your your villains being um, not just brute force. You know, if you're fighting a Tarrasque, great. It's a it's a force of nature, but it's more of an entity and not not really a character. Mm-hmm. Um, having 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 a villain that is smart, which is why I chose 
the bad guys that I did for campaign one, because that was like the most terrifying aspect to me about mind flayers. I mean, eating brains was a close second, but like the, the intelligence, the sheer like horrifying intellect that they possess uh, is, is really the scary part. So having a, having a villain, an enemy that can outsmart you uh, is really great. Um, And, Having your players outsmart them, I think, is is maybe the pinnacle of yeah. uh, of, of gaming moments, um, and certainly having them be able to discover things, uh, weaknesses, secrets, um, hideouts. You know, um, striking the villain where they're weak uh, would be you know really great. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It. It really is interesting when when you think about the the great villains of D anD D. How many of them, uh, just like the the concept alone, is something that creeps you out? Mind flayers are the perfect example of this, because um, I, I think you even said this in one of your behind the screen episodes. A mind flayer, like a single mind flayer, is not a physical threat to most high level parties or even most like mid level parties. Taking away all of its other abilities, it's, you know, not really that threatening. But you add in this ability to control minds, uh, all of the kind of layers of mind flare psychology and just the way they operate. That's where the threat comes in. That's where the creepiness comes in. And then you can add stuff on top of it like spellcasting and and other crazy things to make, uh, you know, the, the full threat that is a mind flare but i think what it comes down to what's so intimidating about the mind flare right off the bat is just the the image the the visual of the mind flare is something that's very kind of striking to players so when it comes to designing your villains how how much emphasis do you place on the physical description of what your villain looks like and how that translates to, you know, what kind of intimidation they bring to the table. Oh, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a great question. And I wish, I, I wish I was better at um, visualizing things like that. I think that is a huge weakness of mine is, is clearly visualizing characters that I make up. Um, uh, I, I don't think that I'm, I don't think I've got any aptitude with it, uh, at all. And, and certainly like, you know, it's hard to compete with a, with a classic D and D monster that's been around for decades. Um, I guess what I've done is I try to, I guess, like employ this kind of cheap, writing trick of like describing one specific thing about a character um and then and then the player's minds generally fill in the rest um you know i described uh bryce in this current campaign as having a a jawline scar and that he's kind of short in stature um and had a i think i said he had a man bun (laughs) uh but uh um and wears full plate armor and i think like just a few specific things like that. Um, I can't remember if it was in Stephen King's book on writing that uh, he talks about, like 
describe a couple of things in very specific detail and people's minds generally fill in the rest. Um, uh, I think someone like Andrew Kolb, who is an, an artist and also a, a game master and a game designer, um, you know, he's, I think he would be much stronger in, in terms of like, well, you know, he's done it in his, his books, Oz and, uh, and um, Neverland of, of making characters and describing them and drawing them and presenting them to, to everybody. Um, it's not my forte, but uh, uh, hopefully, hopefully everybody else doesn't have the same hurdle that I do. Yeah. I, I found that one of the, one of the things that I always go to when I'm creating a villain now is I actually go over to hero forge and I start trying to build um, a miniature for my villain because I, I it helps me it's an imperfect visualization but it helps me put pieces together in my mind um and, and something that i found with villains is you know that obviously there's a tendency to make them grotesque because that it's it's a primal thing something that's ugly is something that's off-putting and so you know having a a really grotesque really uh you know horrid looking villain is a temptation, but there's also something to be said about the, uh, the Gus Fring type of villain. The one that's so nondescript, non-threatening upon first glance that when kind of the, the ultimate evil is revealed of what they've actually done and who they are behind this kind of facade of normalcy, that can be just as terrifying as, uh, you know, something that's that's butt crack ugly and, you know, trying to cut their head off with an axe. Yeah, of course, the physical deformity that signals that um, that they have some inner flaw. Yeah, that's a that's an old uh, it's an old writing trope, too. But um, yeah, Gus Fring, what a great example um it uh it reminded me almost of um little finger from game of thrones you know mm-hmm. the first half we'll say the first half of game of thrones before things got dicey um little finger was such an interesting character because you knew he was up to something but you couldn't you couldn't nail him on what and that i found really fascinating is that uh, he was sort of openly nefarious but uh not in such a way that he could be uh, that like that anybody could do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Vic, uh, is it deformities that are considered offensive now? Um, I, what specifically uh, are you are you referring to? Oh yeah, yeah, giving them a physical flaw. And honestly, I don't. It, it's it's a trope that's used a lot. It's a predictable trope, but I also feel like it's. Um, it's one of those things that's in a lot of ways kind of narratively appropriate, uh, in that it, it, it's, it's like an old, old school literary flourish, um, Mm -hmm. almost, it reminds me of like the Scarlet Letter, uh, a lot of the characters in the Scarlet Letter, their names and kind of their physical attributes fit together in a weird way, like, uh, Reverend Dimsdale, the word dim is right there in his name, and when you meet him, he's 
essentially a shell of a man because of the guilt that he feels. And a lot of the physical description of him almost is summed up in the, in the fact that his name is Reverend Dimsdale. You, you also see this a lot in Ian Fleming's villains in the James Bond novel. So I don't want to take away from uh, the the notion that, uh, you know, a, a deformed evil character is, is something. Uh, yeah, I think that's a trope that you can use. You just have to be uh, intelligent about it and you have to employ it in, in uh, ways that the deformity isn't the like some of their parts. It's an aspect of who they are internally. It's a reflection of uh, almost kind of what drives them to be what they are. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the reference to James Bond villains is is great, and um, and certainly it's you know very very commonplace um, writing technique to have the the physical appearance of a character uh, sort of telegraph um, what that character. Uh, maybe like um, like uh, the the devil character in the Master and the Margarita was, if I'm remembering back to my university days, which were you know little um, hit and miss. Uh, uh, more like a, he's presented as a, as not an evil character, but I think morally gray in that story, and so he was dressed as gray. Um, uh, but yeah, in a lot of tradition, like in a lot of older literature. Um, evil characters had, uh, you know, they were scarred or um, something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, again, like a lot of tropes, and this is something, that word trope is almost used like a slur sometimes. And it's something that I wish we could get away from because like a lot of, like a lot of tropes, the physical deformity is something that's a good starting point a lot of tropes are a good starting point that you can build a kind of bigger foundation on because it's something immediately recognizable that people can latch on to uh there it's familiar and then once you have once you hook them with the familiar you can then build into something new but it has this foundation this core that's recognizable uh not just you know from modern person to modern person, but even going all the way back to the ancients, this, you know, these core ideas that almost resonate with us on like the, the level of our DNA. I think more people need to go back to these simple ideas and these tropes and try to build from them instead of trying to just reject them entirely. Yeah, and and understanding tropes is a good way to, you know, just to go back to twists. If you are wanting to to talk about twists or creating something unexpected, mm-hmm. um, understanding tropes is a good way to like learn how like what expectations are are people coming into the game with or into a story with, and how can I subvert those? Um, you know, you have a character like. Um, uh, like like the beast and beauty and the beast who is um you know outwardly uh you know uh fearsome but is uh, i mean it's been a while since i've been a child and watched beating the beast but like you know he's he's a good he's a good person um so that's sort of a subversion 
Yep. Yeah, and even uh, Beast, his his Beast form is, uh, it, it's like a form of penance put on him by the, the witch that cursed him. So it's it's even still like a, re- a reflection of something that's inside of him. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, that's a good point that you make that there is, it's not the sum of his parts. It's an aspect of him uh, that he's basically had to pay the, the price of his life for. Um, but once someone is able to look beyond that, that's when he is able to forgive himself and kind of reconcile the beast with the man, and and we've gone in some kind of weird uh, philosophical and esoteric <laughs> uh, directions, which I, I figured we would, because when you talk about villains, a good villain is a reflection of something nasty but familiar about society. That's why the horror genre exists. Um because it, it resonates with the, the darker side of people and dark things that we all see in other people and in ourselves. Uh, so when you talk about villains, you almost have to get philosophical because that's what good villains do, is they uh, essentially hold up a mirror to your psyche. Yeah, I remember um, in... Like while I was in university, we uh, we talked about um, in one of my postmodernist literature classes. Talked about um, uh, I th- I think the the actual phrase that my professor used was like um, the outward like the the outward f- a visible flaw represented a, a character flaw, which I think was specific to a story we were reading at the time. But we also got into this whole thing about like why are people so like interested and almost at times enchanted by characters like the Joker or by Hannibal Lecter? Like why do we why do we find them so fascinating instead of repulsive? Yeah, I mean, there's several there there's several ways you could go with that explanation. Um, I, I think some people are very much attracted to the darkness and, and again, they, they see something that's just kind of primal and human and unapologetic in the, the villains. I think some people, um, almost want to embrace that darkness. I don't know. I, I feel like I'm psychoanalyzing people at this point. But yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. It's, I think, I think some people, um, they, they, uh, they want to, at times, maybe um, shed the, the mores uh, and, and shackles of polite society and be sort of like, you know, I, I often say to my wife, you know what? I wish I could be as honest as Larry David for like one day <laughs> um, and just say whatever I thought um, and be able to deal with the consequences uh, the way that he does in Curb. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think maybe that's a bit of the attraction is that mm-hmm. people sometimes feel like, you know what? I wish I could I wish I could go up to that guy who flipped me off in traffic and just, just lay into him or I wish I could, uh, you know, if I wish I could be rude to somebody, you know, things as banal as that. I, th- I think it translates into being fascinated with characters 
villainous characters who who are free of that sort of uh of that sort of restriction Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's the unchecked id in a lot of ways a lot a lot of villains are kind of just you know the 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 hedonistic pleasure-seeking side of the brain gone wild uh completely detached from any kind of ego or super ego but now i just sound pretentious so uh i should one one topic that i do want to bring up that, that we should talk about uh specifically when it comes to rpgs uh because encounters with villains usually involve unraveling machinations that the villain has in place or even accidentally unraveling machinations in some cases um but when it comes to setting up the dominoes or the the Rube Goldberg machine that is the villain's ultimate plan or ultimate goal. Uh, wh- what do you what do you usually start with as far as uh, you know g- giving the villain something to pursue? Um, well, yeah, I, that's that's a that's a good it's a good starting point. Is um, like the way that I've done the last few campaigns is that I start with. Like, what villain do I want to run? You know, you're playing a game, like, pick a pick a bad guy, pick a monster, pick a, a, a character type that you are going to be interested in, in running, that you're going to enjoy running. Um, and then from there, uh, with, with really any story, like a, a, a villain character uh, should be after the same goal as the protagonists like they're actually after the same thing they don't have their goals are not divergent their goals are the same and you can describe it broadly like um you know uh who has the you know who's going to have the um uh prevailing worldview uh or who is going to have like it could be as broad as that or who could have control of the specific resource or specific um you know item or uh geographical area um so yeah i i i kind of i kind of start there uh with with you know the villain what does the villain want how how is that going to um how are the players going to deal with that because if it's something like you have a you have a villain and they want control of this specific thing or specific area on your map um and that is of no consequence to your players then they're going to have no motivation to go stop them mm-hmm. um so what the villain is after also has to be something that the players want and and you know just just as a, as an example um i think in the dark knight it was like the battle for the soul of gotham like yeah. are the people of gotham good or are they you know evil and completely self-interested and detached from morality which one is it yeah yeah and and that's a very important uh point that a lot of dungeon masters i think accidentally overlook uh you know, you may have it in your mind uh, that Sarkhan the One-Eyed is going to muster his forces. He's going to march across the river 
uh, and he's going to take over the next town. But if none of your players are invested in the next town, you know, if none of them are from there, uh, if they don't live there, you know, if there's no involvement in on their part with that particular uh, town that, that Sarkhan has his eye focused on, um, they're, they might even join him, just depending on, on who your players are and uh you know what what they are looking for in the game so understanding uh, in a lot of ways you you almost have to understand what your players want out of the game to then weave your villain into the story or you need to uh take what your players want and weave it into the plan that you had already set up for the villain so it at some point, the interests have to intersect, and that's where the conflict comes from. And a lot of GMs forget to do it, or I, I don't think anyone intentionally doesn't do it, but I think a lot of people assume because we're playing an RPG, they're naturally going to want to overthrow the bad guy. They're going to want to be the heroes. And, you know, sometimes... A lot of times, actually, you, you're dealing with players who don't necessarily care to to be the hero just because they've been prescribed that role. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think having... I don't know if anybody does this at their table, but um, for the last few games that I've run, it's been really um, a lot of emphasis placed on you know, those those sections on the character sheet, your bond, your ideal, your flaw. Um, and then, like I said, I have a questionnaire of about 10 questions that goes beyond that. Um, and I don't know if anybody out there does this, but, like, uh, I, I would recommend not skipping over those sections, you know, not letting your players just take a pass on those. Um, everybody, Everybody wants something. Yeah. And understanding what your party, every individual member of your party wants is going to, you know, for you as the as the game master, like it's going to help you steer them. It's going to help you um, put things in front of them that they're going to want to engage with. Yeah. Yeah. A, a good example of that in your show is uh, Thaddeus. I, I know I, I've talked a lot about Thaddeus on the show and since i brought him up i might as well well <laughs> <laughs> yeah gotta throw that out there he's is he the only is he the only character that has a one word catchphrase <laughs> <laughs> and i should say that i am uh i i, I didn't get the t-shirt question when we started but i am wearing my uh my Sweating shawarma. I know the text is probably backwards, but uh, mm -hmm. the the shawarma shirt. Um, so Matt uh, Matt invented on the uh, off the cuff this uh, shawarma chain in, in our world, and then Kevin drew a um, what do you call this thing? Like a donier? Yeah. I don't know. If, I don't know. I don't. I don't eat meat, so I don't. I don't. Um, yeah, it's a sweating. It's a sweating meat meat uh, cylinder, and uh, the. The motto, the the motto is, uh, or the the slogan, the sweater the better, um, for sweat and shawarma. So Thaddeus loves his shawarma, yeah. and um, just as an aside, I was uh, I was playing, um, I was playing Hunt Showdown with Matt 
um, about a year ago. And, uh, and I had, uh, I had been in the local grocery store and I saw that Dawson's hot sauce, um, had a shawarma sauce. And I said, Matt, cause I knew that Matt likes hot sauce. Uh, and I said, Matt Dawson's has a shawarma sauce, dude. <laughs> he says, he says, yeah, I don't really care much for shawarma that much. It's more of a Thaddeus thing. <laughs> I I don't know Matt at all. Uh, I've never spoken to him. I've spoken to his wife, uh, but I I don't know him. Uh, but the fact that he has essentially turned Thaddeus into like an alternate persona from his own that that coexists within his head just endlessly amuses me yeah yeah sorry i i feel like i derailed things for for a, a minute there um we were talking about um thaddeus's uh drive his uh mm. his his bond yeah uh, his ideal which is all of all of the above vengeance <laughs> bond vengeance ideal vengeance flaw vengeance yep but yeah his his kind of narrative buy-in as far as, uh, you know, wanting revenge on the people who betrayed him. Uh, essentially, you, you've been given kind of, like, free villains in, in that regard to, to work into the plot that your, uh, your big bad has cooking. Because uh, if they weren't involved at all in, in the plan, uh, if they had no affiliation with the bad guy whatsoever... Uh, in in any way, uh, it, it would be a temptation for Thaddeus to just completely ignore the plot, or even uh, you know, if the villain kind of dangled out in front of him, I will show you uh, where the people are that you want to kill. You, you know, at that point, you've got a, a PC going uh, going villainous uh, for the sake of their own uh, kind of goals, which has happened in one of my games before. I had to. I had to take a character... Well, they surrendered their character sheet willingly. Uh, but I had a, a point where one of my uh, player characters was like, I, I don't know of any reason why he would turn down this offer to go to the dark side. And I was just like, all right. Whoa. He's an NPC at this point then. Was, was was that character just gone out of the game or did they come back? Oh, that character uh, came back a... several times. <laughs> Several times. That's a challenge because, like, usually in my experience, a villain shows up once and is killed. Hmm. <laughs> this um, this villain yeah. ended up becoming a very high level wizard at a certain point. Uh, so he disappeared for a while and then came back. And at that point, he had learned how to clone himself. So, ooh, very nice. Yeah, in uh, in campaign one, I had a doppelganger who I was like, um. I was planning to to have them be sort of a, a recurring nuisance. You know, I think the party was maybe level four at that point, so they're still pretty low. Um, and first encounter, you know, they they cornered him in an alley. There's a brief chase, but uh, the rogue's backstab was uh, was too much for this uh, this lone doppelganger to withstand, and so. Uh, Mago the doppelganger was slain um, but uh, yeah so I learned after that um, 
taking another piece of advice from the podcast I mentioned earlier. Um, uh, there's a trick in uh, in the first Mass Effect game where, um, you know, Mass Effect is like an open, I think it's a semi-open world sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, yep. But it's you're, you're supposed to have a, a degree of freedom as a player that you're used to. And so uh, there's a character named uh, Saren uh, betrays you and and interacts with you later on, like after the betrayal and is lying. And you as a player, you're like, you know what? I would just take out my gun and I would I would put Saren down like right here. Like he's he's betrayed me. He's lying about it. Um, so the way that the game designers dealt with that was that they had Saren hologram in, you know, you can't, well, you can shoot a hologram, but you're going to look like a crazy person. Yep. Um, so after, after Mago got, uh, got killed, you know, one and done, um, I had this other villainous character named Arizax who showed up as an illusion to, to sort of work with offer the characters a degree of cooperation um and you know you can't you can't kill an illusion and in that way it's a it's a good it's a good way to have the villain recur mm. without having to have them you know fight and really trounce the party over and over again i mean me personally i often lament about my encounter designing uh, abilities so um I feel like my counters are either too tough or they're a cakewalk. And um, I kind of like it's usually more of a cakewalk thing. And so uh, maybe other people are better with with having villains have a, you know, a good challenging fight and then escape. Um, if, if you're able to do that, please drop me a line because I'd really like to, love to know how. Uh, but basically, I had Arizak show up um, in a way that he could communicate with the party. He could sort of convey his you know his his arrogance and the party could interact with him and they could grow to hate him more and more um up to the eventual encounter where it was one encounter and they killed him mm -hmm. uh, to answer vic's question you run in 5e um which and and that's a that is a very common problem uh I think that a lot of people who, who run 5e have is it's either way too easy or uh, it's way too difficult. And there doesn't seem to be a good middle ground in 5e where it's challenging, uh, but you're not essentially like decking the players in one turn, uh, irregardless of action economy. Because... Uh, you know, honestly, that like that's as big a problem in fifth edition as uh, things being too easy at times is when you do ramp things up, when you do like kind of really up the ante. the The equation doesn't quite balance as well as it should, and you end up with a villain that you know if they get to go first, or even if they're going like third. They're gonna kill a player character in one turn. Yeah, I'm kind of reminded of Matt Colville's uh, one of his videos where he was talking about um, running an encounter, and he, I think, what he said, just to paraphrase, was like, you know, round one, just you know, let your biggest gun go. You know, 
really hit them hard with with like a big opening salvo and then you pull back mm -hmm. um uh i think i've done that a couple times and uh and when was the last time that i have it it may have been the uh the gibbering dragon um from from this most recent campaign i think had a few nasty tricks and and that was a pretty tense fight i was i was happy with that how that fight turned out Yeah, and it's it's funny that you mentioned Matt Colville, uh, as well as talking about making villains recur, because a couple months ago Matt Colville had a video about villains, um, and and talked a lot about making sure that the villain's presence is constantly felt, and he raised an idea uh, that he seemed to be very enthusiastic about that I was repulsed by, and. I even rewatched the video today, and I'm still repulsed by this idea in an RPG. Uh, he basically said you need to have cutscenes of the villain talking to their lieutenants in the middle of your RPG sessions. Uh, so, basically, you have to cut back to Lord Zed on his throne talking to Goldar, or you need to cut to the boardroom in Austin Powers... At, and I know, like, I just raised, like, two ridiculous examples, but specifically when it comes to RPGs, you can't take the focus off what the players, like, what their characters are experiencing and seeing, because there's not a good way at that point to differentiate between what the players know and what the characters know, and it's important to make sure that the focus is tightly on the characters and what they perceive and not, uh, you know, cutting over to the GM role-playing with themselves, uh, monologuing about evil plans and how the players are foiling them. It's, I, I don't know where that idea came from in his mind. I don't know why that seems to be the solution he settled on. But I, I, what are your thoughts on that? I, I personally don't like that at all. I haven't seen, I haven't seen the video that you're referring to, but um, I'm, I'm thinking that that like, just to go back to like what we were talking about earlier about, um, about giving opportunities to the players and the player characters to learn. Um, I feel like just handing that over to them is, is kind of, um, almost like taking away an opportunity for them to to have a really rewarding experience like you know if you if you want to if you're i guess if you're doing that um mm -hmm. maybe somebody's figured out a way to make it um uh work where you're not dis like divulging a whole lot of information if it's a scene where i guess where the the villain is maybe throwing like um you know uh, a paperweight at his lieutenant for like messing up this operation that the PCs uh, were involved with. Like, you know, you got defeated by these, uh, these, you know, rat catchers sort of thing. Um, you know, it's not really, I guess it, I guess it's kind of giving them a little bit of extra, you know, congratulations on, on foiling this particular plan. Um, but if it's, if it's like actual information, I don't know like, was that what he was going for? It seemed like he just wanted 
reminders to the players that they were actually like accomplishing something. I don't, he wasn't talking about like divulging crucial information, but it was like, I, I don't know. It, it struck me very much as Saturday morning cartoon, uh, you know, like I said, cutting back to Lord Zed or, uh, you know, evil emperor Zerg, uh, you know, like smashing a computer console and being like, darn you, you'll pay for this. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it would be a trick that I would employ. Um, I I would I would prefer to go with um, other other ways to to sh to show the presence of of the villain. Um, if you're dealing with a cult, then maybe there's like <clears throat> the influence of your cult is uh, of the of the villain's cult is spreading throughout the city and you have like you know at the start of the game there's like one sort of doomsayer who's preaching just to nobody um in the town market and then a few sessions in they're preaching to like a group of 10 and then a few sessions after that they're preaching to a group of 50 and maybe there's more of them more more of these uh doomsayers out on the streets maybe there's uh um, you know, a blood red moon, something like that, you know, a sign of the cult's, uh, you know, malevolent influence. Um, I, I think I'd probably go with something a little bit more like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I understand the, the need to have the villain's presence be felt constantly. I feel like one of the best ways to do that is with lieutenants. And also, um, kind of you know visual like you said kind of you know visual representation that things are starting to get worse that you know the the noose is tightening around the players necks um I, to, to use the 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 sarkon the one-eyed example again uh you know if they're continuously being a thorn in his side uh in his capital city uh, they they might start seeing their faces on wanted posters, or they might start seeing that, uh, hey, the city guard is, you know, uh, a lot more heavily armed, and they're patrolling in, in greater numbers than we uh, originally saw. Uh, I, I feel like that is a little bit more effective than essentially just, you know, reminding them that the villain exists and is not happy with what they're doing i i feel like there's subtler and more interesting ways to do that yeah if uh if sarkhan the one-eyed is you know uh besieging a town you know you're even if it's one town over and your party is at an end and say oh i want this meat like oh sorry we're out um the siege you know 10 miles over is where we get our supplies from nothing's coming out of that town um or you know you look out one day and the normally beautiful sunrise is marred by smoke as sarkhan's armies are burning um or even you know what if you're if your party frequents taverns um you know throw a bard in there who's singing about recent occurrences mm -hmm. yeah that would be um now you've got me thinking about like what if they encountered, what if they encountered a uh, a pro Sarkon bard? You always, 
I feel like bards are always. Uh, I'm pro Sarkhan and I vote. <laughs> I, I feel like bards are always kind of like subversive to the the bad guys' plans. You know that, like, you know, any. Obviously, you know, Lord Sarkhan the One-Eyed, as I prevent, presented him, is some kind of uh, noble or monarch of some description. People like that have propagandists. People like that are charismatic and are able to sway people to their sides and will have agents who do the same thing. So, you know, I, I think it would be interesting to have players uh, kind of roll up into a tavern that's very much against what they're doing and... You know, like their ringleader is a super charismatic, uh, you know, like troubadour or bard or, or something like that that is actively riling up the people against them. I, I think that would be an interesting thing to, th to throw at players. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was just picturing like the uh, the 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 minstrels that um, Sir Robin had in in the holy grail monty python and the holy grail uh but uh in a tavern and mocking the players yeah. using the same sort of you know maturity level of insults they mm -hmm. be super effective psychic damage for sure <laughs> absolutely turn that vicious mockery on them for a change <laughs> <laughs> yeah but even thanos had uh ebony maw who was um I don't know if he was that way in the comics, but in the movies, he was um, almost like a, like a preacher for Thanos. Like this is, you know, embrace embrace the undeniable vision of Thanos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the Silver Surfer is also that way uh, in in the comics. He's the Herald of Galactus. So, uh, you know, w when he shows up, it's generally uh, to subjugate people before Galactus shows up and, and eats their world. Uh, so, you know, having a forebearer like that, even if it's not necessarily a threatening one, uh, you know, just, just some kind of like weaselly cleric or, uh, you know, bureaucrat with a silver tongue or something like that. That's an interesting conundrum to put players in and to remind them of the threat that's around them, uh, especially if it's someone who's well liked and high placed in society, uh, like if the mayor of the town that they're headquartered in is suddenly a very vocal supporter of Sarkon the One-Eyed. Uh, things have changed. Uh, they've escalated, but not in a way that, you know, the players could necessarily just, you know, like kick in his door and cut his head off because that's going to have its own set of problems. Yeah, so now, now you're going to have to differentiate between um, a villain and an antagonist. Um, an antagonist is uh, is simply a character who is working at cross purposes from your protagonists, but maybe not necessarily someone that they want to harm or or kill. Um, so your your mayor, who is convinced of of Lord Sarkhan's um, vision, uh, maybe an antagonist, uh, but not a villain. Uh, maybe somebody that they could persuade to see a different point of view. Um, uh, so it's it's great to have those kind of characters in there for uh, your social encounters where you don't want everything to resort to violence. Um, you know, if if you want to have those types of, of, of encounters. Um, but uh, but your your true villains, you know, they are true believers. They can't be persuaded. They're not under 
they're not doing what they're doing because they're under a misapprehension or anything like that. They are, uh, they're like zealots. They yeah. believe what they believe to a degree um, that uh, that they have to see it through no matter no matter the cost. And oftentimes, the end justifies the means. Hmm. Yeah, and that's that's another thing that I think is overlooked with a lot of villains, especially ones that are amassing uh, large power bases. Uh, not everyone is going to be a true believer, and so you're going to have some threats who are, uh, you know, purely mercenary. Uh, you know, maybe some of the soldiers that you're fighting are just doing so for the coin, and you know, w- with sufficient uh, persuasion or even you know a, a bribe here or there, they might be convinced to you know lay down their arms and go in a different direction. You also have people who are uh, you know otherwise reasonable normal human beings who've just been, uh, you know, kind of taken in by, uh, you know, loud promises and, and fancy talk that uh, appeals to, to something that they want to see happen. And those people, again, you know, you, you can't just go around like lopping pe- people like that's heads off because ultimately they're, you know, they're just as much the victim as you are in a lot of ways because, you know, it's not going to turn out the way they think it will. If they go that route, um, you know, you'll have a, an Obi-Wan type NPC saying you've become the very thing you swore to destroy. Yeah. And I think that goes back to ways that villains can challenge players morally and intellectually uh in addition to or instead of physically uh because when you present stuff like that you you present not just different kinds of challenges but also alternate paths to success uh now it's still heroic fantasy or you know sword and sorcery usually it's going to end in some kind of violent confrontation and a lot of players want it to be that way because you know that's that's the genre that's the game we're playing uh but not every single thing along the way has to be a long drawn out session of combat because if it is then that's where you get a repetitive samey game and uh for you who who's running a game not just as a game but as a form of entertainment uh beyond just the the game being played at the table you don't want things that feel samey otherwise your audience tunes out and those of us who just play games to play games you don't want your game to feel samey to the players at the table otherwise they're just going to go oh here we go again and they're not going to be invested yeah yeah i mean if every if every challenge um or every obstacle i should say um ends in uh combat mm-hmm. then there's going to be a point where you're going to present something to them that maybe you don't want to end in combat and they're going to jump to that because that's, yeah. <laughs> that's the solution um, <laughs> yep. that they've been, that they've been uh, sort of conditioned to, to engage with. Um, yeah. The way that I've tried to incorporate it with like this campaign and the last one is to, is to give the players choices. Um, and I've tried to bake in a couple of dilemmas and giving them like choices between two suboptimal outcomes yeah um 
so in in I guess in the current game, uh, Thaddeus, the the oath of vengeance paladin, was given a choice by the subject of his oath of vengeance. So his his nemesis um, was offering to help him against a stronger enemy, um, or Thaddeus could have fought and potentially killed him then and there, and then and then would have still had to have dealt with that enemy afterwards. So either way. It's not a great choice for Thaddeus. Yeah. Um, having to work with the, the, the person that he hates the most um, or kill that person that he's sworn to kill, you know, and fulfill that promise to himself uh, and then proceed on to another fight that would be even more difficult uh, without the help of, of this other character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as Thomas Sowell once said, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. So presenting those uh, situations where you're, you're having to pick uh, between two bad options, two or more bad options, uh, that's where you know, that's where you can really challenge a player. Yeah, that's where you know that's that's where you get you know. You, you get them thinking about, you know, not what spell am I going to use next, but, like, what is my character going to do? Um, because, like, those choices, those are the choices that really change the outcome uh, of the game. Like, I, when I presented that choice to Thaddeus, um, I think that was around episode 30, 28, 27, um, I, I thought that they were going to fight and that uh, Bryce would be dead. Um I haven't been correct in many of my assumptions about what the party is going to do. That's kind of a, a running, a running thing. Um, I should do like the George Costanza thing and like do the opposite of whatever my gut instinct says. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, that was, that was one choice and there's been a couple other choices. Um, there's one that's sort of unfolding right now, even as we're playing, uh, but that was one choice I really, um, is going to uh, really impact like how the story ends, um, and that was a choice like not mine as as the game master. That was totally on on Matt and and the party uh, how they wanted to approach it. So um, all I had to do was you know show them the doors, and they they chose which ones to walk through. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, uh, as tends to happen when you and I talk on this show, uh, time has gotten well away from me, and I wish we could you know, keep talking for another hour or so, but unfortunately, we are up against our time right now. Has it been uh, an hour? It's, it's, been, it's been an hour and 15. Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, I, yeah, no, that's, wow, yeah, time did fly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, as always, I, I really appreciate talking with you about stuff like this, even uh, when we got into the weeds uh, on kind of like esoteric philosophical concepts. Uh, I, I think that's a good mindset to have when it comes to the villains uh, that, that we're creating is, is kind of to, you know, get into those nitty gritty topics and really dig into what it means for uh you know this villain to be a villain yeah yeah um and about what i said before about physical um 
physical tells uh, that I was referring. I just want to be clear. I was referring to uh, to li uh, literature uh, <laughs> that I was uh, studying in university, um, sort of classic literature and some analysis of it. Like I have a scar above my eye. Doesn't mean that I'm a bad person other than I'm a psychopath. Other than that, I'm totally normal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> these are, uh, you know, these are concepts of storytelling uh, yeah. that, that are, they don't translate one-to-one -to, -one to the real world, but, you know, in storytelling, everything is symbolic. And so that's what, you know, that's what we're dealing with is, uh, you know, symbolic concepts. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like the villain, uh, for, like for me as a starting point, it's it's a it's a great jumping off point because like the challenge uh, that you set before your players is, you know, what and, and the choices they make uh, is what like defines defines them. Um, I don't, I, sorry, I don't want to run us over time, but um, one of the questions on the questionnaire that I put is like, uh, for for when we're just starting a game is how do you see your character changing over the course of this campaign? And that to me is um, when when they answer that, uh, I say, okay, how can how can the villains that I'm running, how can they incorporate this change? Um, maybe I'm just doing like extra steps where they're not needed, but uh, uh, certainly like, when like when new superhero movies are coming out everyone's like oh well, who's the new villain in this one um it's because like the villains sort of define like the hero's journey mm -hmm. yep absolutely well once again thank you so much for uh coming on the show it's it's always great to have conversations with you and we'll definitely need to do this again uh sometime soon i am thrilled that my power stayed on it went out twice today but uh i i'm very happy i didn't have to uh abruptly leave you and i'm sure that like my face would have been frozen in some kind of weird expression uh but uh, i'm glad that didn't happen absolutely all right guys well that's gonna do it for this evening thank you so much for joining us here on rolling bones uh next week to kick off uh 2023 uh, legacy game mastering is going to be on here uh we're going to be talking about the word community uh, what it means in the sense of, uh, you know, RPGs. We'll also be talking about several other topics. Uh, so I hope you guys will join me then. Uh, but until then, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I'm so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I will see you guys next time.